episode four of Researcher Revealed. This is the podcast where we go beyond just the first initial and last name of the authors to start to get to know a little bit more about them, why they're passionate about research and the journey that they're on or that they've taken to get them to where they are in their career. Today, we have joining us Dr. Lindsay Welch, who is a nurse researcher who specializes in the area of respiratory diseases. Um, she's going to talk to us all about her journey as a nurse researcher. I hope you enjoy. Today is episode four, and today we have joining us the lovely Dr. Lindsay Welch. And just to remind everybody, um, Researcher Revealed podcast is all about trying to reveal the person behind the research. So going beyond just knowing that Dr. Lindsay Welch is L. Welch when she publishes. Right. Are you ready, Lindsay? I am ready. Right. We are going to start off with our rapid 11. I wish it was 10, but I like all the things that I ask you. Um, just quickly, first thing that comes to your mind when I ask you these questions. Are you okay. ready? I am ready. <laughs> are you nervous? Yes, I am. <laughs> what are you going to ask me? Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> Excellent. Right. Are you a Windows or Mac? Windows. 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 Tea or coffee? Tea every time. Don't even drink coffee. Different sorts of tea. Lots of Ooh. tea. Much tea. No coffee. Nice. Nice. Um, when you're writing, music or silence? Oh, so what I have, I have changed. I used to be Ooh. a silent thought writer and I've moved to using biurnal sounds. So I've sure, used... Sorry, what, what kind of sounds? Like biurnal. So they're like um, oh, like oh. natural, natural sounds or natural rhythms, like dropping of rain or background oh. sounds um, or... Um, rainforest noises but there's also some study sounds and they kind of tap into kind of white noise not white noise it's a different sort of noise so yes i am i'll, I'll send you a link to add to the end of this say, podcast yeah yeah yeah. definitely send a link because i'll put it in the description so that other people can check it out yeah right definitely. we're getting distracted already this sorry is not a good sorry. sign <laughs> no 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 this is what it's all about don't worry about it um where do you tend to work home or office Again, I've just had a bit of a, a sort of a switch up. Um, I I would probably write better at home, but okay. I found home. So home has suddenly become a more distracting place. Um, I used to love working at home and now I've got a preference working at the office. But equally, I work at the office and switch on that particular type of noise to help me focus in the office. Nice. Interesting. And what time of day are you most productive? Mornings. Mornings, early, yeah. early mornings or like normal mornings? No. So my most productive days are if I get up really early and run and mm. then I come back at like eight, nine, ten and then I'd be able to do things. And then I find I have a, I always have an afternoon dip and I might be able to pick something up kind of five, six, seven. So, yeah, there's like a, a diurnal variation in one's <laughs> writing abilities, just like asthma. Fair enough. Um, what is your favourite referencing manager? Ooh. Now, I've fallen out with many referencing managers over the course of my career. <laughs> I wouldn't say 
I have a long lasting friendship with reference managers. I um because I find they don't the NHS software and NHS systems don't like reference managers at all. Um so currently I have it's <laughs> really embarrassing. Currently I I pin references and comments to Doodle Docs to Google Docs and have them all sitting down the side. Then I suck them all out and do the maths, which is not a good reference manager approach. I did prefer Bear in mind, I've got an NHS contract and NHS job, so I, it's hard to install one. When I was at the university, I preferred EndNote. But then me and EndNote fell out many times. I think that's a common a common thread. Um, what about your favourite way to visualise your data? Oh, oh data visualisation. So um, I, that's really good. So it depends if it's quant or qual. Um, so we'll go both, shall we? So quant data, I I always like to contextualise my quantitative data. So I don't like to just look at figures without understanding the 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 kind of the like the where they're from and what they sat and where that came from. So I look quite a lot at population health data to try and draw conclusions about people and populations from a public health sphere. So I like to contextualise it. I like to real world it um, mm. and kind of think if it says this. How does that interlink and what does it link to? And are we and actually in rethinking, let's not just say that statistically that means that because it never does. Let's let's kind of ground it in what we know about the real world. So that's number one. That's how I like to kind of but I take myself through a bit of a circle and I like okay. to see the graphs. Qualitatively, mm-hmm. I am I am a drawer. And in my oh. mind, I am a drawer. So I draw I draw everything qualitatively and ask all my students to draw it in a picture so I draw it in my mind like if I'm and I know what it is in my head in terms of a conceptual type framework or uh or concentric circles or there's um there's there's a model there's always a model that you get to as you're doing thematic analysis and sometimes I have to just draw something and then go back and interlink it and then it's continue to iterate the drawing but for me there's always it's quite pictorial and it's quite timelined and I'm using my hands because I see it in my mind and then I have to and then I have to draw it first and I tend to get my students to draw it I draw it draw it draw it and they I can't draw it it's like you can draw your themes and then we'll work on how they interlink and look at the antecedents the precedents like the concepts how it sits yeah nice like it Mm. uh favorite desk snack dry banana chips sorry what now I was too quick on that wasn't I dry Dried banana chips. Ooh, healthy mm. option. Maybe not. It depending yeah. on how many quantity. Yeah. Or <laughs> or on a bad day, yogurt covered peanuts. Nice. Mm. Okay. Um, if and when you're planning organising, are you digital or are you paper? So I mix that up a little bit. I am quite a bad, like back of the envelope scribbler. So there's stuff around here, like there's a tea bag box. I would have written something on the tea bag box and I've put something over here. So I will have thoughts and they will be really random in different, like, like, like this. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah, it'd be completely random. But then if I'm going to organise something properly, I will, I often use a slide set. 
So I use a slide set to organise my thoughts because I can come partition them into into slides rather than start with a Word document. Interesting. Not heard of that one before. Very cool. Um, what book are you currently reading? Mm. Oh, so I my novels I've given up on. So this is really sad. The actual book that I'm actually sitting here actually looking through. So I had to redo someone else's qualitative analysis. So mm-hmm. I'm actually reading qualitative analysis by um, by Margarita Jarvinen and Nana McMayer. So it's that's a very, and but the other one that I keep picking up and putting down, which I feel mm-hmm. like I've got to the end of, is um, you can't quite see it, can you? There you go. Uh-huh. Oh, it's called Inventing Ourselves, The Secret Life of the Teenage Brain by Sarah Jane Blakemore. Um, I feel that it it's helped with understanding my life, my teenager's life, and why why kind of people take why kids take risks, why things are different, why people behave like they do, um, and how the brain develops. But it's it, but it's grounded in a series of research studies. It's not a novel it's quite nice it's one of those like pieces where someone's taken all of their papers throughout their their kind of research lifespan and written them into a novel type format i quite like those i was gonna say i like those books i might have to put that one on my list Mm. last question who's a researcher that you admire Mm. so, mm. so i have my kind of um they're not always they're not always in my field so i've been really really I don't know how much research and I haven't read their research. So I'm a massive Professor Alice Roberts is my superhero on many okay. levels because she's taken, she's mixed medical science with anthropology and like prehistoric history um, and has done loads of her research on kind of bone analysis. I know I'm quite out there, but I kind of also like the way that she's positioned herself and the way that she's taken her research and presented it to people in an accessible format that people can understand and relate to and walk that journey with her and learn from as well. So I think that's why I'm I like I know she's a TV presenter, but it's actually what the work that she's done, but how she's presented it through that medium. And I think in terms of tangible people that I kind of link in with and think yeah they've done a good job and I, their work is good and I'd like to work with them mm-hmm. I'd probably say so honestly someone who's who I've worked with off and on whose work I admire because of their detail and their honesty about I don't know about that let's go look it up it'd probably be Peter Griffiths oh, oh he's mm-hmm. lovely he's lovely but he knows what he knows and he does that well and he'll go yeah. Let's look up Heidegger again, shall we? Like, yeah, let's do that. That that kind of um, but actually, he's somebody that will constantly make your work better. Nice, very cool, excellent. Thank you for that. It was going to be fun. It was fun. Thank <laughs> you. I'm now thinking about banana chips for the win. Uh-oh. Yes, <laughs> that's not good because it's, it's a ways yet before it's tea time. But okay. anyway, um, so. Now that we know a little bit more about your preferences around research, can you please tell us who you are and um, why research? Good question. So who I am in terms of who I am academically and what I do, um, just broadly. So as you introduced me, I'm Dr. Lindsay Welsh. I kind of 
was successful in getting my PhD in 2021, but it was January, I think, I'm thinking about it, but I've always, always, always had a research interest throughout my whole career. So I am a nurse by background, I'm a respiratory mm-hmm. nurse by background, and I've kind of as you kind of you if you're clinically questioning and inquiring you kind of go why is that happening why are we not doing something about this why is that happening there why have we not done anything about those patients what's happening there why can't we just make a service change why can't we just benchmark against that why can't we just do all these things what do i need to know to be able to do that and do that well um and that's where i kind of got drawn in but I was running quite a long time ago, I think, when I kind of did my master's in public health and population science and kind of developed that kind of interest. My and But my, my research has always been in why do people do things that they do? That's always interested me too. So it was very kind of um, my first my first kind of dabble was as a master's student in a public health course where I looked at it's always respiratory why and everyone's into like adherence to medicines and inhalers and I was like it's much more than just this was a long time ago than just taking a puffer or not and I think there's like some social concepts and social kind of interplay that goes on and I think religion interplays with that as well so I looked at different religions and how religion interplayed with taking medicines and inhaled therapy um which kind of developed my interest in kind of um different religions attitudes to health and medicine um that's, that's a- interesting that you say that just an aside because i can't help myself i had a conversation last week with somebody who said that exact same thing that he in community work that he's been doing um he's discovered that a lot of patients um who are halal won't take their medications because nobody can tell them whether or not they're halal yeah, which, which is really simple. Yeah, is is it a law? What's in it? Is the beef pork in it? How? Is, but, but yeah, but and we need to be more open about those sorts of things. And then people would may or may not consult their imam as the first port of call rather than the health professional. So yeah. it, and it's about actually where do you and 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 that's kind of and where so where do those health beliefs come from? Where do our value sets come from? And where what do we value more and it's our religion and what happens next mm. rather than kind of this very westernized medical model which we need to probably kind of broaden to think about how I literally had a conversation this morning about how we deliver pulmonary rehabilitation and goals in people of different religions and faiths and actually where we assume everyone's goal is to do you want to walk further and see your grandkids it's like no actually I want to be able to say my Mars I want to be able to bow properly and I can't bow properly if I'm breathless. Yeah. yeah. So, we, so that was kind of when I first dabbled in in research, and then I kind of went on and did. I had a bit of a break and kind of well, not a break from research. I just needed to get some clinical competencies under my belt as well because I was a clinical practice nurse and needed to do kind of <laughs> IMS, smears, ears, asthma diploma, rack it up, spirometry diploma. You know, be a fully fledged and operational practice yeah. nurse, um, and then. Then I started delivering large-scale research for companies and other people, so um, for working for Synergen and working in terms of delivering kind of the interferon beta trials. So I've done lots of clinical trials work um, in in respiratory, which also then took me on that journey. And then I was like, I reckon I could do this. 
I reckon I could use, <laughs> and I also reckon there's questions we never ask and there's questions that are never answered. And it's all very well developing a new drug and going, cool, this drug works, but are people going to take it? Why are people going to take it? Where are we going to use it? How does it fit in the pathway? How's that aligned with what we're doing in clinical practice now? What are we doing in clinical practice now? Um, and in each time, each time I took a step up that questionable research ladder, what happened is my clinical career went like this. And then you kind of end up having this. This is my academic career and this is my kind of clinical career. So the more you ask and the more you learn, you can take a few steps up here. It's like, oh, but now this is behind. So you're constantly having to swing that pendulum to get things right, I guess. Okay, Have so I answered put, that question? I've taken you on a very weird journey, haven't I? No, no, very it's weird a beautiful journey. journey. But I have a question for you. You mentioned something there, this balance between clinical and academic. Just for everybody who might be listening out there who doesn't understand what a clinical academic is, tell us for you, because again, there's like a million definitions of a clinical academic. For you, what does that, what does that look like? What does it mean? Okay, so... So that's a good question because I think everyone is striving to build clinical academic pathways, build capacity in the NHS. So for me, it means that you are a fully fledged and independent clinician. You you are. It doesn't matter what sort of clinician you are, nurse, doctor, allied healthcare professional, speech and language therapist, scientist, even to a certain degree, as long as you're working with people and you've got that clinical interface. But the but you are interlacing it and intersplicing it with academia but the but for me a clinical academic is not that you do some academic work over here which is slightly random and doesn't link to what your clinical job is so for me the clinical academic part of it is how do I get better at doing this by doing my own research then how do I inform others by teaching the things that I've learned do I teach it here do I teach it at university so there's um and then how does my where do my questions come from? So where do my research questions come from? Actually, they should be coming directly from what's happening in practice. And then actually, do I need to answer that question or can I can I get support from students and people? And can we all work that kind of space together? And it's kind of like this sort of space. It's not like a it's a fluid space, I think. Mm-hmm. But I think both should inform each other. Um but you need skills in both areas to be able to do it well. And those skills need to be at a certain level to be able to be independent. Okay, that's helpful. Thank you. So clinical academic, balancing, like you say, your skill levels between your clinical role and your academic learning, performing research. Now, those are two very different things. Because this podcast is researcher revealed, we're going to focus on the researcher bit, not the clinical bit. Um, so as a researcher, as a clinician, sorry, as a clinician trying to become a researcher, tell me about that journey. Was it was it easy? Um, no, no, it was not easy. Um, no, it's not an easy journey. I think it's uh, and there's things that you have to think what am I prioritising and what might I have to give up on the way? Interesting. Um, yes. So I do think there's part of a, um, there's, and, and there's people that don't understand what you're trying to do along that journey and there's people that do. So I, if I think about kind of later on into my journey when I kind of had a kind of a senior nursing role and I was leading a service, it was, um, 
and I had a really clear remit for what I wanted to do as a PhD. And mm-hmm. to me, it seems really doable. And mm-hmm. I knew that I could still run a service in my mind. I could run a service and complete <laughs> my PhD and pull it all together. Mm-hmm. Um, but it would take quite a lot of my own time, but it would also take support from the system and buy-in to enable me to buy out some of my time and kind of put someone else in that space but also maintain that oversight but actually what I need to be able to convince people and others around me is that I wouldn't drop my clinical work and I would still be able to achieve all of that and actually the PhD will be able to inform what we do as a service and that bit's quite key so that because Mm. it would all interlink and people so it's a so some of it wasn't necessarily just about I want to do a piece of research, great. I'm going to go and teach myself how to do research. I'm going to read you some master's modules, bid for a bit of money and off I pop. It's like, actually, I'm a single parent. I need to keep my house. I need to keep my job. That's really key. That's the most important. So how do I weave it in and make it all work together? How do I continue to support services? And how do I um, kind of pitch pitch the value of this to the NHS? How do I pitch and how do I bring people with me on this journey? Because actually it's not a journey that you go on alone from a clinical space because you have to bring the team with you because mm. there's quite a lot of, you know, here I'm actually doing a PhD. Okay, that's true. I'm not here on Fridays, but I am here really. And if it's desperately, you can ring me. That's okay. It doesn't mean that I can't cover X or Y. It just means that I've but I've bought in time, so I've actually backfilled that time to be able with this person. So that's okay. So it's also about bringing the team with me, with you to say what I'm learning is going to help you as well. What I'm mm. learning is going to help bring you all with me. What I'm learning is going to make differences to our service. What I'm learning is brought in money so we can employ somebody else. So it's about, so research is bigger than just, I want to find something out for me. It's got to benefit the service, the organisation, the people, and you've got to kind of build, we talk talk about capacity and capability, but it's got to be about a willing journey that lots of people enter into with you um, in, in those services as well. And I think that takes quite a, that's where, uh, the power of like like framing your work that aligns with what people want to know and that other people can go yeah 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 we need to know this so, so it's about motivating others for, about your journey I love that research is a journey that's bigger than just about you love oh, that yes. that, oh, no, that yeah, needs to be yeah. on a t-shirt <laughs> Yeah, no, it's so much bigger than it's just about you. So everything that you do should be, you should be thinking about the, the systems and the people and the people that you work with. And you and the, and is it right that I just go and spend a whole day in the library? Is that right for the service? Is that right for everybody else? Am I the right person to be doing this right now? If not, am I going to have to do it on Saturday? Probably sometimes, yes. If I'm going on a Saturday... What am I not going to be doing on a Saturday? So, so some, so this is where you have to decide on if you want everything. No one can have your cake and eat it. So you do what? want. You, no one can. We nearly what? can. We nearly can. We can have a slice of it, but you never manage to gobble it all down. <laughs> never. So you, you, yeah, you can have a slice and a couple of slices. Then you're like, you know, I probably need to give some of that cake away. Yeah. Yeah, and then. I like that's that. Okay. Yeah, so we need to share the slices of the cake out. 
Okay, so we've talked about research generically, just to help people know who you are a little bit better. What what particularly are you um, focused on when it comes to research at the minute? At the minute, okay. So little. So I've talked about some of the research I've done when I started to move into things. So my actual PhD look was very was very socially orientated, very social science PhD, but still focused on respiratory. And my area of expertise is people with COPD. Mm-hmm. And people with people with long term respiratory conditions, namely COPD, less. What is COPD? Just in case people oh, don't know. I'm so sorry. I'm turned into respiratory <laughs> mode, didn't I? Chronic <laughs> obstructive pulmonary disease. So it's a long term, um, sadly progressive respiratory condition, mainly caused through smoking damage, but kind of toxic inhalants, which might be kind of traffic or it can be work related. Oh, wow. But it's to do with um. It can be, yeah. So a lot of traffic. I mean, like Delhi level traffic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now we say Delhi, everyone goes, ah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I get it. Now. Yeah, that's, yeah. So um, um, uh, um, but it causes obstruction in the airways rather than restriction. So obstruction is struggling to get the air out, which you might have if you had asthma. You get that obstructive feeling where you can't breathe out. But actually, we can relieve asthma with reliever medication, and we can have more control over asthma if most of the time. There's also that's a whole different story that I won't talk about. But COPD is more of a of of a chronic condition, so you get kind of that creeping obstruction, which means I'm breathless again. I'm breathless again. I can't get up again. I'm breathless again, and then you're more prone to kind of exacerbations, which means that you have lots of sputum or mucus, and you get lots and lots of chest infections, and so that kind of the 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 mobility levels that you have may decrease over time because of your ongoing breathlessness and then a muscle wastage. Okay, so your research. Research, sorry, that was COPD. Sorry, I can describe COPD quite a lot. Um, Yeah, so my (laughs) research on COPD started off looking at how we support people through pulmonary rehabilitation what next so pulmonary rehabilitation is a program of exercise and sort of getting people kind of i won't go into pulmonary rehab too much because that's a complex intervention which equally needs quite a lot of discussion so it's an exercise program we'll just leave it at that for now it's much more than that and i'll be shot at dawn by all my pulmonary rehab friends um but at the end of rehab, when people are leaving services, what next? What happens to people then? Okay. How how do people negotiate their own condition for themselves? Okay, how so do that people transition into outside of care? Yeah, outside of okay. care. And and how do people negotiate their the systems and processes? But how do they negotiate their condition? So I looked at kind of really unmasking self management as a concept in COPD. It's going to come into the conclusion that. I don't believe self-management is something people with COPD can do on their own. It's not a thing. Mm, that's so it's, quite controversial. Indeed it is. I'm not very... Yes, I don't believe in self-management COPD. I do believe in supportive self-management. And I think that there are... I, I think it's peer-supported and clinician-supported, particularly peer-supported. So I think the people around you and the groups and the people that you interact with are really key to how you manage your disease not what you necessarily do as an individual okay so that was my phd what i've moved on to now is still in the copd frame so i've moved on to um acoustic technology 
in how mm. we an acoustic sensor work in how we um, listen to chest wall sounds and okay. also looking at a ubiquitous technology in how we listen to sounds particularly in people with COPD and asthma which is where this is going um, when you for instance might blow into a mobile phone and just do oh. a lung function test so we're not there yet we're not there yet so it's um so that's where my kind of research has taken me the last piece of work that I was hopefully in the process being publishing but they're being published in digital and technology and engineering journals at the moment oh, okay. because it's very much centered around the ubiquitous technology angle even though there's a heavy respiratory angle with the acoustic chest wall sounds and breath sounds at the mouth which is my area of expertise now bizarrely is breath sounds <laughs> At the mouth and on the chest. I spent quite a lot of time on my own listening to hundreds and hundreds of people blowing into mobile phones. Wow, interesting. So respiratory, uh, in general, around research, um, both social as well as quite advanced high tech development. Yeah. In your research career then, have you always managed to be able to focus solely on respiratory research within your career? No, 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 no. So this is one of the things that I want to say. It's always really good. It's always really important to have an interest and an area of expertise and a passion. But actually, which is for me is respiratory and for yeah. me is kind of digital. And, and, but for, to enable to move respiratory forward when I've joined a research group, actually respiratory wasn't needed in that group but digital was okay so so hence i skewed my kind of my research to be actually i know that support that self-management doesn't work in this way but actually what if we use technology and what do we know about digital uh, and okay. so hence, hence my digital respiratory leaning because actually it's also about linking linking your area of expertise and passion to current affairs current research current trends and patterns it's like all forthcoming issues where is everyone going also you have to get your own research funded that is it's nice just to do it for fun (laughs) it's nice to sit and go do you know what i think i'll do this literature review that'll be fine i'll just spend my saturday and sunday doing that no actually um and actually i need to buy some random equipment to build some just wall microphones and test so we need to get everything funded and you need people to support you on that journey so we have to think about what's getting funded and the very sad thing is there's not much funding for particular diseases but there is funding for novel novel technology Mm, okay. So it's about reframing your area of interest to kind of fit into a research group or research priorities. Um, the other part of that is the work that I'm doing now within the Academic Health Science Network is health okay. inequalities. Okay. Um, whereas if a lot of people with long term respiratory conditions are people that are of low socioeconomic status, okay. maybe have had very manual jobs, inhaled lots of fumes. And therefore, actually, kind of that sort of fits with that inequity of care okay. provision. So they're kind of sort of two areas of research that have been born out of my respiratory interest. OK, so what I'm starting to hear from you then is as you've gone through your journey, you've discovered quite a lot of unwritten rules that I mean, for me, when I started my PhD, um, I hadn't really thought about that thing. So tweaking your area so that you you still have that 
red ribbon. So if we think about like a plot in a book, the red ribbon that goes through your career. But, you know, when you first were talking to me about like acoustic technology, I'm like, how is that relating to self-management? But now, as you've explained it to me, I'm like, oh, I get it. Yeah, because you can you can do some management on your phone, but actually you can't see my phone, can you there? So you could you <laughs> could use kind of something digital, use your phone to manage your disease with maybe a support network but with maybe some other tools that make it make you more likely to be able to use it so if we can offer like a lung function element to it or tracking or health tracking yeah that kind of links through my expertise in self-management in copd but develops that into the next iteration of something very very digitalized um, and, and, so, and the same with inequalities i would guess as well because again how able um, and if I may be so bold, like you, I kind of believe that self-care and self-management is a convenient solution for healthcare services rather than actually being grounded in what individuals are able to do given they are chronically unwell and usually quite sick. Anyway, we'll put that on a shelf. Um, you know, the health inequalities picture around those management things as well, because it's it's more than just you come to the doctor and the doctor says, here, take these pills and they trot away and very happily do that. It, it's more complex than that. And your your culture, your religion, your socioeconomic background, where you live, whether or not you live independently are all things that will change that within a chronic disease. No, indeed. And they change the way that you might approach it or manage it or understand it. And that's why one of my other kind of streams where I've actually kind of put quite a lot of research thought into, but I've been very unsuccessful in getting it funded. I've got lots of written work in it, lots of thoughts in it, is digital disadvantage um, in terms of that health inequity space. So okay. the, the digital divide is creating more health inequity within health services but particularly within some of those fields that we just talked about so people with copd people with long-term chronic conditions who come from different backgrounds and or have not enough money or have or self-employed and all of those sorts of things impact on how you approach health care and health and social care and or while we're digitalizing things does that make it better for some but considerably worse for others um, but that's an area of really interestingly that I'm asked about a lot. I talk about a lot. I've lectured on a lot, but no mm. one, will, no one will fund me to ask people about it. So I would, I, I've kind of put some studies mm. together. I've put several studies together on digital disadvantage. Um, people would like to see the next digital tool. That's what people will fund. But interestingly, so this is something I'm starting to get into that I'm getting quite passionate about, is interestingly, if you look at a lot of uh, especially health led research around digital technology, again, I'm going to limit it to cardiology because I haven't looked much outside of cardiology, is a lot of those apps, um, and it was a question raised at a conference recently, because research takes, let's be honest, forever. Um, by the time you get it funded, you get it done, you analyze it, you know, it takes it takes three to four years if if you're moving fast. And by then, you know, there's been five new versions of an iPhone that come out. 
and your research on digital tech is now obsolete. And and I think that digital divide that you're talking about, that becomes even more exponential when you when you look at chronic illnesses. But again, I think, like you said, like so many people are like, let's just fund it because it's what we need to do. But the people who are putting their hands up to do it, you know, you know, they're not looking at things like engagement. They're not looking at things like who's accessing it, who's not accessing it. Everybody puts like an educational component on it. And my question is, is how many users are actually looking at it? So if you spend all this time developing all this educational videos, does anybody actually look at it? Yeah, how many kits does it get and and who's developing it? And something yeah. Something that I've discovered which is really interesting is um, because I have mentioned I work for the OHSN at the moment. And so this was a year kind of working for the NHS and using those digital health inequalities research skills in practice almost mm-hmm. is the development of technology far exceeds the, is as far as faster, rapid speed than the development of our research. So innovators have already made something because yeah. they see a gap in the market and yeah. it's market and business driven. And even if we think, so you and I think, oh, I wonder if that's safe to use in that condition. It doesn't matter. It's out there and people can download it. But like, it's oh, like, okay. It's like, for me, the big warning around that though is the whole Theranos thing from America. Thanos? Did you say Thanos? Yeah. Theranos. Oh, Theranos. Sorry. <laughs> Since Thanos from Marvel. No. Real different space. No, no, no. Theranos. Theranos. So Elizabeth Holmes and hooray, look, I've created this magical box that, with a single drop of blood. Oh, uh, Will um, tell you everything that might ever happen to you in your health ever. Um, and without actually even having a machine that works, um, start selling it in a Walgreens, so a chemist in America. And she's now in jail. So there, there are, for to get anything into the NHS, there's huge amounts of layers and stipulations and DTAC and. Oh yeah, you know, I'm not saying it's the same, but I think it's still a little bit of a, of a thing that this tricky balance between research and digital innovation in this field, I think is something that's going to be really interesting to watch because there's a real war between innovation and proper research, which takes time and innovation is, you know, up here of finding a way to balance it so that the innovation doesn't like, I think I read a statistic somewhere that like of all the digital health applications that get made, there's bajillions of them. I think it was like under 10% ever get used. And that's even that's including ones that are research developed because they just aren't doing what people want them to. Well, no, yeah, 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 indeed. Or, um, or when people are trying to get the process to get things right and make sure they've jumped through all the hoops and everything's perfect. And it's like, no, we've tested it again. We've tested it again. We've done our really big trial. We're going to go for our CE marking too. So it's like ready to go. Like someone's already jumped the gun and just put something out. Um, mm-hmm. So it, it, this, it, it's a really tricky marketplace, um, which I call marketplace because that's what it is. It's very business driven. Um, and there's, but it is regulated. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, does it, yeah, but there, you're right that um, that research is is not at pace with that marketplace. 
Okay. So back to research. Yes, yes, yes. Back to research. <laughs> we just keep getting distracted, but that's the that's the thing I love about this. So in your research, in order to get to the stage that you're at, um, you know how how did you go about? growing this network and getting connected to ASHN and the job that you're doing there and health inequalities, as well as like the really fancy auscultation tech that you're working on. Just uh, share with us a little bit. What does what does that look like? Like from going from doing your PhD with just your supervisors, um, plus or minus them talking to you, depending on who your supervisors are to being a fully integrated uh, nurse researcher who's got all the connections that you do. Wow. So it is a journey and the, all these things are journeys, but there's no there's no path on this journey. There's no oh. there's no clear pathway. So I can if I start off at the University of Southampton, did two years as a postdoc um, and I was a lecturer, so I had a teaching commitment as well, but it was I needed to develop a program of work that linked research teaching um research teaching and knowledge exchange so how do i link back and yeah knowledge exchange okay. is kind of about can be about business or policy okay so how how do we get our research out and what do we what do we underpin and what I, i'm quite interested in knowledge exchange because it's about implementation science to a certain degree mm-hmm. it's about impact of your work and sometimes impact is much about oh we, we gave a lecture and we told the clinical team but i was like but there's more than that that's not impact that's just telling people about it so that i'm sorry but i love how some people think that giving a lecture solves the problem yeah <laughs> anyway yeah, yeah that's not that's just you've just told so so knowledge exchange is much more than that so yeah but i was developing that piece of that kind of those three things and a lot of it was around public health but it was around respiratory and public health and around smoking and and as well that's public health model and then which is what I was teaching, but then it's about respiratory research and then how that linked in digitally and how public health can be monitored. We can monitor air quality as well, that public health part of it and how that okay. linking could yeah. be the acoustic technology and then that's digitalization, which meant me the digital the digital of our research group. So we all kind of interlinked together. But the knowledge exchange became more interesting to me as well as the research. It's like it's all very well that I might be working with engineering so Mm. collaboration and the right collaboration and cross collaboration is so key so Mm. none of this type of work could be done without my engineering colleagues and being part of an engineering kind of student group and going I've got these ideas can you make it and they go yeah I'm like wow (laughs) you can just make this stuff and one of you guys like can do software and I can help you work the software one of you can build the actual thing that's amazing so he's working with really passionate engineering students Ah. as well they say I worked with so instead of just working with nursing students I work with engineering students to say these are some of our healthcare gaps these are some of the healthcare gaps in respiratory where can we start with this this could be your student project so I was kind of the customer on their student projects which was a really fab place to be that's fascinating so you stepped outside of nursing during that Mm. postdoc period and you connected in with engineering which couldn't be further from yeah yeah no but Um, it's so so close because there's so much health technology so I linked in with um, Professor Neil White who is fab so I will mention him and he's just like he had kind of lots of sensors sensors that he said actually they've come from the lunar modules on Mars so they kind of detect things the robotic lunar sensors so they detect things in front of them but he said if we turn them around 
we reckon they could detect things in the body. I, I reckon they could. Can we do respiratory rate? Can we do heart rate? Can we do this? Sort? So that's like, that's so cool. So he started with a sense of conversation with Neil. And then he was like, do you want to join my group projects? where we get the engineers to build things. Do you have some ideas? I went, yes, I do. I want to look at inspiratory flow work and can they build inspiratory flow monitors that can be digitalised to a phone? And his students did. They made a rudimentary kind of actual physical thing and we presented that work with them. I was presenting with them because it was kind of my concept and they built it. So it was really, really fab. And then that linked to me linking with more engineers and more engineering students. So a lot of the PhD students I've worked with have been engineers, not nurses and uh, the fabulous jags jag morgan chauhan who is works at the university of southampton as a lecturer and researcher is um really into ubiquitous technology and how far that can go so mm. what can you what can you do with your alexa so but he is about the tech he has yeah no no kind of health interest or health knowledge yep. and i was like I think we can do this in respiratory. I think we could do this here. I think we could do that here. So between us, we were able to go for grants. And between us, we were able to develop a, a fairly good research group and bring in a PhD student and then work with kind of nursing students as well. So I think that that cross-fertilisation, cross-collaboration builds mm. better work, um, better concepts. And, and I think it stretched me to think bigger and bolder and mm. because I've learned how to and unpick programming on mobile phones to download breath sounds you know so, so things that I wouldn't have expected to be doing and looking at acoustic spectrograms I've spent a lot of time looking at um, what sounds look like using spectrogram analysis oh, techniques wow. uh, yeah it's, it's, my mind it, right it is really, really cool yeah okay so in order to progress, then you're suggesting then that uh, researchers, nurse researchers, AHP, like any sort of clinical researcher post their PhD, need to be brave and to refer back to Sandra's <laughs> podcast and just get out there and collaborate. And even if it's somebody as out there as what you've done with engineering, then if it if you've got that red ribbon of how it can connect to your own focused expertise, then why not? Indeed. And and also the knowledge exchange bit that I was alluding to. So I did link with engineers, but the knowledge exchange bit of it enabled me to link to business, enabled to link okay. to um, uh, innovators. Um, right. So people that were developing things knew that. So I actually joined uh, business. I won't name the business here, um, but just as kind of in my spare time, I actually did R&D work with them to develop their technology. Okay. But then all of that work combined and my digital disadvantage and my kind of the nursing. So when you come with a nursing brain to a digital tool, yeah. you're not thinking about the program. You think about how does how are people going to pick this up and work with it? How yeah. is this going to interact? How is it going to fit into yeah. the service? How are people going to use it? That's really valuable for innovators. That's really valuable yeah. for people creating tools. Yeah. And that's what led me into working in the health inequalities role on the HSM because I was like, oh, this is what they do. This is what the HSN does well. We think about how how we implement tools. And that part, that knowledge exchange was the gap that was missing for me. It was like, okay, it's more, it's more than just 
let's just tell people about things there's an implementation science that sits behind it and i want to learn that and mm. my 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 decision to go to the hsm was based around it was a health inequalities role which i was really passionate about but also there is a way and there is a process there's a methodology and there's a science behind that knowledge exchange is so much more than that. It's getting things into practice, getting things evaluated in practice and doing that real world evaluation is really, really, really important. Um, mm. And that's been a big piece of learning. And that's kind of really linked academia, academia and the NHS for me quite nicely through. So as I can move on to my next role. Ooh, ooh, can you spill? Can you tell us? I think I can because <gasps> I've got an official what? start date. So what? I'm moving to um, University Hospitals Dorset um, to do an associate ooh. professor role, which I'm very excited about. But it's a clinical, a actual proper clinical academic post where you're employed whoa, by whoa, the whoa, hospital. Whoa. Slow down. You have a real, let's not pretend, clinical academic post. For real, one that is split between a university and a clinical role on a single contract that didn't require you bringing your own funding into it? I will have to bring some funding, but yes, you're right. It, I've been employed in that role and I actually Same. only rang yes. up about, uh, very few, I only literally rang up about that job because I was like, oh, it's a real clinical academic post. It's a clinical post where you can work and you can bring in your academia. I'm so excited by this. And I went, why don't you apply? I was like, okay, okay, I'm scared now, but I will, I will apply. Um, so I did. So I can say now because I do have a start date. So which is fab. Um, still super Congratulations. nervous. Congratulations. Thank you. Still super nervous that I can kind of bring everything together legitimately, and have like a workspace where this is all going to link together. Mm. Also super scared that um that it'll be too much, but there'll be lots. But I think um I just have to work with it and if and both you and I have been on journeys before where we've had one job and done a bit of the other and then I've worked in academia and gone back and done bank shifts um just to keep to make sure I'm still a clinician and I've got an NHS contract so the joy of just not having to go I really need to do some bank shifts now I really need to keep my hand in or I really do need to do some thinking and writing because I just feel like I'm delivering care, which is all good. That's good. But I need to think about it more. So to be able to go, oh, I've actually got a lot of time for both. It's quite scary, but it's going to be big. So, yeah. So, so the, the post. The post is, will be, it's, will be, it's a university hospital Dorset across Poole, Bournemouth and Bournemouth University. Very okay. excited. That's I can't say very much more because <laughs> I don't know. Um, and yeah, and those those are details that will be surprise me when I start. Um, but what we but, should do is we don't have to put it in the calendar yet, but we should plan in like eight months to a year, bring you back onto the podcast, and you can give us an update as to what a real clinical academic post looks like and feels like. That would be fab. And what kind of some of the challenges and barriers are, and what I've needed to balance, and like I said, what things you need to drop along the way. Excellent. Cool. Um, just conscious of the time because it is flying by. Wow, it is, isn't it? <laughs> I told you it would. Um, so just trying to bring everything together. Something that I keep hearing you say throughout our conversation, and I wonder if you can kind of just for everybody out there who might be considering trying to become a researcher as a clinician or for people who are at some point during their journey, 
Can you just kind of summarize in your in your world and in your experiences in your journey what are the biggest unwritten rules that you've discovered along the way that helped you um get to where you are now as you learned them okay so biggest unwritten rules build good contacts great mm-hmm. contacts people that are on your side working in the same direction people that give you good advice take that advice build it in and be good and be good at receiving and incorporating feedback yes listen to the advice yes yes don't just go hmm you just don't don't take academic advice too personally be honest about the things that you don't do very well and that and but also start to know what you do well start to know what you bring to the table okay start so that's know. the second one yeah the second one is okay. what do i do well what do i bring to the table when i'm cross collaborating okay. what what's my what's my skill set my research skill set what do i bring as a nurse researcher what do i know what have i looked up what can i do actually we're more qualitative you don't find many engineers that are going to ask people questions about how they feel we can do that um but also know what you don't do that well so i'm clearly not great at um uh machine learning and ai engineering i know how it works I understand it I can talk about it but I can't run a python program mm, I know that okay. and I yeah so I know what I can't do um but I know how but I understand it to know how that links with what I do do okay yeah that that's a trick so I know what it can do um yeah. kind of keep keep your interests keep your expertise but be aware you're going to have to branch out and broaden so you've okay. got your thread. So you just yeah. you call it the red thread, but actually you're going to what else links to that, and how do I stay current? Um, and also something really important is the art of contribution and publication, which sounds like Ooh. how what's my contribution? How have I contributed to others? Not just taking from others. What am I going to contribute, and how am I going to support other and fellow academics? How do I help? Is it just a conversation? Can I put something in? Can I review something for people? How do I share things with others and be a good like I feel like a good academic? Like how am I going to a good researcher and how do I support and grow new people? Um, But publication is an art. So you write it and that's fab. But bringing the team of people together that might write with you that have contributed and are going to be part of the writing is something I kind of learned outside the university with a really great team of people that we wrote together and we write really well together because we all think very differently and we've all kind of got key roles in the writing process. So having a great having people um, and I have someone that I write with that knows how I write and how I think. So I think pictorially. And yeah. I think I think slightly differently and they are a read writer and they love words and writing. So if I've written something, they always go, why is that like that? Write it that way around. So I always I always write with people that write differently to me. But I think to that me. fits in really well, like that what you're saying, that art of uh, collaboration and publication and how you've just described it really fits in well with I forget whether it was point two or three that that know what you know and, and know, know, yeah, know you how you work know, yeah know how you work in order to put that 
magical collaboration together that becomes productive. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I know that I will have a big picture in my mind and a big map in my mind and I'll have drawn the picture, put something together and I'll have thought about this. And then someone will go, can you pick through for spelling mistakes? I'll be like, no, no, that's that's not that's not I'm I'm not the I'm not the complete finisher in this um yeah that's not my forte <laughs> did you I've got to know that like so yeah so you've got to have somebody this but there are people that will be like let's get this crisp but yeah yeah let's mm. do that <laughs> let's do that um but you're gonna have to help me on that I'll journey. cheer you from the sideline <laughs> yeah yeah but I know it needs to be like that and I know that that somebody else needs to do that because that's not my full time. I can do it, but I'm not best at it. Okay. Any other wise words of wisdom before we wrap up? Um, I think I think that my wise words of wisdom is research is not just all about you. It's about mm. the people you take with you on your journey, mm. and then when you finish your journey, who you're going to take with you on the next journey, um, and not eating all the cake. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us today. I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation and I learned so much. It was brilliant. Um, for everybody out there who hasn't listened to us before, just a quick reminder that this is the Researcher Revealed podcast. Um, and if you have any further questions or there's something that Dr. Lindsay Welch mentioned during the podcast that you're not sure about, drop it in the comments and I can forward it to her and we'll try and sort it out somehow to, to, to answer those questions for you. Um, if you liked this, hit the button, thumbs up, leave a comment and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on our next exciting episode. Thank you so much and I will see you soon. Don't go away. Up next, we have the top three takeaways from this week's podcast by Dr. Rosalind Austin. Oh, Dr. Lindsay was great, wasn't she? So much good advice in that, um, in, in that conversation. Uh, so, as you know by now, top three takeaways for me from that chat that I had with Lindsay. The first thing is she kept using the word journey. And I love that idea because especially as a clinical academic, as a nurse researcher, there isn't a paved highway. Um, and I've actually read, <laughs> written before in my journal that it feels much more like an overgrown jungle that I'm trying to hack my way through at times. Um, she had a really good point there that your research journey isn't just about you. It's not just about your PhD or your fellowship or your grant or your ideas, that it's bigger than that. And it's really important to take those other people, whether they're collaborators or mentors or clinical colleagues, to take people on that journey with you, because that will enable you to go back to what Sandra said in our episode one, to share your cake, your your project, your ideas with more people, and that will help widen its impact. So I really liked that analogy as research journey. Um, the second thing that she said, um, well, that we kind of both said, is that to embrace as a clinician that you will have an area of expertise or an area of passion, and whether that's a pathology or whether that's um, 
a certain intervention, whatever that is, um, and allow, so embrace, figure out what that area of passion is, embrace that area of passion, and then find ways to weave that expertise into all of the work that you do. So even if, like Lindsay said, you know, she went from working on self-management to developing a technology on auscultation through your smartphone, which sounds well cool. Um, and those seem very disjointed. But for her, she was able to weave that ribbon of self-management in COPD between those two things so that she felt that she'd still be having an impact on people's journey who have COPD. So, yeah, weave that ribbon. And the third thing that I loved, absolutely loved, because it's something that I I really agree with quite strongly is in your PhD journey, if you're on it or about to embark on it, it becomes much more than just about the things you learn about research, the techniques, the qualitative, the quantitative, things like that. It also helps you start to learn a little bit more about who you are, how you think, what you're good at thinking. And Lindsay was describing how she thinks in pictures. Um, and so she draws everything out and knowing what your your skill set and your knowledge is can help you then as you start to take your your first steps into collaboration of knowing what you can offer, what you can bring to the table. And her idea of, again, pulling together a group of people around you on the journey and to have those individuals be people who will challenge you who will compliment you who will pick up some of the slack in the areas that you're not so good at I think is a really welcome thing is is to think about that you don't have to know it all that actually is about who you surround yourself with and how together um, similar to what Ian Jones was saying in episode three how together then you'll get closer to solving the problem or improving the situation in the given area that you're interested in. So yeah, found it really interesting. I hope you all did too. Um, how are you finding the format? Do you like the top 11 questions that I ask at the beginning? Is there anything else that you'd like me to ask or put into those rapid fire questions? Do let me know in the comments. Also, if you have anything particularly um, for Lindsay that you want to ask her, definitely leave it in the comments and I can forward those messages to her. In the description as well, she's very kindly shared with us how you can find her on social media. So you could reach out to her directly as well if you so desired. Um, she's also going to provide us with a link for those sounds that she was talking about that she works to that she finds really useful in helping her focus, as well as the title of the books that she's currently reading. So that wraps it up for episode four. Thank you so much for tuning in. Um, don't forget to subscribe. It really helps grow this channel and shows me that you're paying attention. Um, so yeah, I will see you again in three weeks and like, comment and subscribe and keep researching. Keep asking why. See you later. Bye.